I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, good old Lyndon Johnson. He did accomplish quite a bit for all his faults. And Donald Trump can be accused of many things. He's anti-democratic, anti-republican government, with a small r, racist, fascist. Many agree he's downright evil, with not a shred of empathy for anyone. And one thing he is remarkably good at, actually, is being a skilled provocateur. Today, while one might think there might be actual policy and consideration of the health of Americans, there's no question he is laser-like focused on winning a second term as president. And that's it. In this regard, his skills have been underrated. Donald Trump wasted no time the very instant Bernie ended his campaign. The Trump team went to work sowing division aimed at people who were all fired up for Bernie Sanders. Could he be outfoxing us yet again? There have long been divisions among Democrats. As Will Rogers said back in the 1930s, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. But the 2020 election is no laughing matter. Trump is adored by religious nationalists who determined to replace our Republican form of government with its three co-equal branches with one-man rule, usually called a dictatorship. It is one thing to have a fair competition between the two parties, relying on voters to make informed decisions, but many games have been played over the decades, rigging voting places, scheduling debates for the smallest audience, suppressing votes, losing votes, and generally aiming to reduce participatory democracy to as small a number as possible. So what is Donald Trump doing in 2020 that is unique, that's special to him? Dividing us to conquer is quite old indeed. And as been noted, Trump is a remarkably skilled provocateur. With us today to lift up the cover of how Trump is trying to screw us again is Owen Higgins, senior editor at Common Dreams, a nonprofit progressive news site, which I think is a pretty good place. Owen, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I am one of many who have little to no doubt that the DNC, had they not rigged the nominating process, as they acknowledged they did and had every right to do as a private organization, Bernie Sanders would be president today. And for a while in 2020, Bernie was the unquestioned frontrunner. Adding to the DNC's opposition, uh, Bernie's nationwide field effort after the early states proved not to be up to the job. So in early April, of course, Bernie Sanders did suspend his campaign. I was a delegate at the 2016 convention. And yes, there certainly was deep division among us Democrats. What is your sense of the Trump team working to manipulate and worse than the divides back then? What did they do to fan the flames. Uh, you mean in 2016 or yes. now? No, in, well, first 2016 and then now. Well, I'm not sure what they did in, in 2016. Uh, you know, I mean, these these divisions existed and exist now in 2020. Um, I think that it would be a mistake to say that uh, 
Trump is making any of this happen. This this is this is an existing yes. division yes. Uh, within the party between the progressive and the right wing, and uh, frankly, it would be political malpractice to not take advantage of that as as an opponent, which is. You know, in 2016, both Trump and Clinton attempted to manipulate the divisions within the other party uh, for political advantage. Uh, you know, I, I, I would I, I would question how successful that really or how much effect that really had on uh, the outcome in 2016, and I'm not sure how much of an out, uh, how much of a an effect it's going to have a practical real world effect that's going to have this time. Uh, but I think that the, the story is more that these divisions exist. Yes. And that any politician, uh, on either side faced with a divided party on the other side, uh, would be, uh, it, it, it would be ridiculous to assume that they that they wouldn't do as much as they could to exacerbate those those uh, divisions. Well, I wonder. There are a lot of people who have you know been, frankly, Bernie or bust people who are saying that uh, Bernie has sold out, even though both last time and this time he gave his word that he would support the Democratic nominee, and now. Uh, the biggest, you know, uh, hurdle, the most important thing is to just get Trump the heck out of the White House. And I know there are some people, it's been surprising, actually, how many uh, people, it's a minority, thankfully, and there's still time, uh, are, you know, hardcore Bernie people are saying, no, 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 I will not vote for the Democratic Party. Joe Biden, no way. And, of course, the, the, the tools that the other side has, yes, that we have too, is the, uh, the Internet, Facebook, and things like that. And certainly uh, last time, uh, I mean, the Russians did interfere. They, they created stuff. Uh, obviously, it uh, seems highly likely with Trump's, uh, you know, wink and a nod. And I wonder how much they're doing that. I mean, I have seen... You know, Trump and Bernie both styled themselves as populists, meaning that they they both at least talk about and trying to tap the anger of vast millions who feel left out that this government is not their government. It's working for other people, which it largely is. And I find it hard to believe uh, that Trump would not did not exploit those divisions with the goal of nominating Hillary and. I, I can't help but think that he's wanted to run against Biden all along. Your thoughts on that, Owen? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that I, I think that the idea of, uh, I mean, we, we we can agree to disagree on how much effect uh, any uh, Russian involvement in Facebook memes had on the election. I I, I think. Yeah, we can agree to disagree on that. But um, well, they certainly did try. There's no question about that. They, I don't think they had much of an effect, really. I think it was overblown. I think yeah. the problem was Hillary, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know if. I mean, the thing about 2016 is, and this is just kind of my interpretation, sure, sure. is that it's very, very difficult for me to look at it and think that Trump really ever had much of a plan. Um. Hmm. You know, I, I I don't think he ever expected to win. Yes. Um, 
I don't think he expected to win the nomination, frankly. Yes, agreed. He, you know, and I think he, I think he was just kind of carried along uh, with the chaos. I, so, I don't know if he prefer, would have preferred to go up against Hillary or Bernie, just because I don't think that he thought it through that yeah, much. That's true. You know, like, and, and, and this isn't a comment on his intelligence or lack of intelligence. No, but it goes it's by more of a comment on. You know, I, I just don't think that he was he was really thinking of it in that way at all. Um, fast forward, but 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 he was probably pushing. We do know. Yeah, go ahead. We do know from from comments and 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 other uh, other things that have come out over the last few years that he was certainly aware of the fact that what like once it became clear that he was a presumptive nominee, he was aware of the fact that Bernie was a stronger opponent for him. Now, I don't think that he did anything to make sure that it was, I, I, I think that he, again, I think that he, he just didn't really have much of a. Yeah. Much of a connection. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a better way to put it is that I think that the Republicans had always been ready to face off against Hillary. And I don't think that they were ready uh-huh. to face off against Bernie this time. I think that there's a stronger argument that Trump clearly wanted to run against Biden and probably did not want to run against Bernie quite as much. Um, And, and, and I think that it's quite clear that, that Biden is the preferred opponent for Trump and the Republicans of, of the entire field. Like, you know, they know him the best. He has a five decade long career um, and his, uh, deficiencies, yeah. you know, like, like, you know, his record and things that have come up recently about, um, you know, his, his, his treatment of women and, right. and kind of his, and, and his, there's a whole Ukraine coherence, thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the Ukraine thing, I mean, like, these are all very easy things for the Republicans to use. I don't think that they had quite as many things on Bernie. And right. also, I would no. say, like, I'm not just saying the two of them. I'm saying that also, any one of the other candidates as well, you don't have the same amount of knowledge of where they're at. So yeah. it's, it's a bit of a different thing. So, yes, yeah, so they would obviously prefer to go up against Biden. As far as um, Bernie endorsing Biden and then, you know, and then the, the idea of the, the Bernie or Bust people, I don't really think that's a lot of people. I agree. Um, I think that of those people who do exist, I think that they are the types of people who are not Democrats. Because I, I would argue that, of course, Bernie endorsed Biden. Of course, he endorsed Hillary. Right. Uh, in all but name, he has always been a very loyal member of the Democratic Party. So there's no question that he would have done that. Um, the difference is that his his base is not completely made up of people who are loyal members of the Democratic Party. And so, of course, there are going to be a number of them who are going to say, I'm not going to vote for either of them. And then maybe, I don't know, like a a few dozen who are going to say, oh, I'm just going to vote for Trump. Um, And not very many, I don't think. What what I see that, and I have no idea how I got on the uh, Trump email list. I get stuff from his campaign twice a day, and it's pretty interesting. And, and they have they have said, and this is a quote from from his campaign, that many of Bernie's supporters are looking for a new home, that uh, 
that you know they they don't like Biden. He's not he's not good enough. He's uh, you know sort of the Hillary branch of the party, which is not the traditional branch of the party. I, I <laughs> you're suggesting maybe a couple of dozen might go for that, but you know being both sort of populist, both outside of it. I wonder how many of Bernie supporters really are looking for a new home that that uh, Trump might be able to tap into. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it really, in, in fact, last election, 2016, there was more of a drop off from people who voted for Obama 2012 and then voted for Trump. Way more numbers there than dropping off from uh, uh, Bernie who voted for Trump in uh, 2016. So I just I just wonder, they're clearly, I mean, Trump has long said, ah, the DNC screwed Bernie yet again. The DNC's the bad guy. And I question, you know, the policy of, of Bernie running against the DNC throughout the whole thing, but it is what it is. And and to, to offer that and, and, and say, yeah, the Democrats are not your friend, I'm your friend. How, how do you think that will resonate? And it does seem to be a, a particular strategy and tactic that they're using. Your thoughts, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's, I mean, it's certainly, I mean, I, I get those emails too, so I've seen oh, those as well. Right. I mean, I think yeah. that it's, oh yeah, no, they're great. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I think that it's, again, I just think that it's like the smart move. Um, you know, of, of course, you're going to make that play. Hillary made that play to Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio supporters during 2016. Um, maybe not as explicitly as Trump is right now, but, um, I, you know, I, I think that when I say a few dozen, obviously this probably can be, I mean, yeah. statistically there would be, there would be more people than that. Obviously. But I think that the, I think that the, it, it, it's kind of like, like Bernie has appeal to Trump voters who have become, disillusioned yes. who wanted to shake things up and have become disillusioned with the way that Trump is just like, uh, in, in, in many ways, economically just kind of rerunning the George W. Bush playbook. Mm. And I, I think that for a lot of people there, you know, and, 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 and frankly, like a, a lot of the, uh, more right wing Obama proposals, just kind of like that's that true. stuff on steroids, yep. you know? And, and so I think that for a lot of, voters like like he had that crossover appeal um no question so i wonder if maybe what trump is doing with this email that is being sent to his email list is maybe he's making an appeal and reaching out to those voters who are already on his list that, that maybe had kind of moved away from him a little bit and are maybe still slightly democrat curious and he's saying, no, 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 come back, come back. Like, I'm I'm the one who's anti-establishment. I'm the right. one who's going to, you know. But again, I mean, this is, you know, I, I, we don't really know what the plan is, if there really is yeah, any. I mean, right. that's the thing about Trump. But it's, a, you know, he, he's just this kind of uh, chaotic candidate that doesn't always have, like, a coherent message. And so. Yeah. People love him for I, that. I think that. Yeah, some some people do. Some people do. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, the, the thing is that, again, I can think this kind of comes back to what we're talking about with how Trump is trying to reach out 
or to Bernie supporters and or exploit existing divisions within the Democratic Party. Yeah. And I think that there's like kind of two questions on that, which is like, one, what kind of an effect is that going to have practically? And I don't think that we know the answer to right. that, obviously. And then the second question is, what is what is the role of the Democratic Party, the establishment, and yes. et, et cetera, in ensuring that those divisions don't, you know, uh, create a massive problem for the party in some right. I don't know if they're smart enough to figure that out, quite frankly. They're after power. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking with Owen Higgins, senior editor at Common Dreams, a very good nonprofit progressive news site. And DNC, yeah, I, I certainly worry about them. And uh, there's all kinds of rumors. How, I, mean, I was surprised Biden turned out to be the guy. I mean, I, it, there seem to be so many stronger candidates, but uh, he... They were clearly very against Bernie, and uh, the the feeling of a lot of Bernie people, I think, is a lot largely true that the DNC no way in heck was going to allow Bernie to be the nominee, even though he was uh, the front runner for quite a while. Uh, I was hoping, but they have their own interests. And you write that Young Turks reporter Emma Vigeland, hope I pronounced that right, warned that Trump's efforts. This is her quote, nefarious and transparent as they are, should raise concerns about internal party divisions that need to be resolved in order to bring Democrats together, irrespective of the president's cynical attacks, end of quotes. There are those who say Biden and Trump are the same corporate rulers. Do, do you ever talk to people like that? I'll bet you do. I know I sure do. What do, what do you say to them? I mean, they're not the same. Biden ain't perfect, that's for sure. He was not my first choice. He was close to my bottom choice. And there he is. But what do you, what do you say to people who say, oh, they're both the same? Well, I think that for a number of people in this country, and not small number of people in this country, they look at the prospect of a Biden presidency and the prospect of a second Trump term and when they ask themselves the question, what difference is it going to make in my life? They can answer that question and say, right. I don't see any difference. And I, and I don't think that yeah. that is an unfair answer for many people. Yeah. And so... It's not a revolution, I, that's for sure. Bernie, you know, was about... Pardon me for interrupting, you know, economic democracy no, and having a real, making a real meaningful change. There's no question uh, Biden would, you know, more, more Obama. And pff, I liked Obama for some things, but boy, some things, heck no. But that's the old, actually fairly new Democratic Party that, that came in in the 90s through the Democratic Leadership Council that went to the right for the easy money. But there is observation from Vigeland again that, that you quote, that really concerns me. She says, so long as the Democratic Party continues to kick its progressive base in the teeth, Trump will keep winning, end of quote. It does seem to me that the DNC leadership refuses not to kick progressives in the teeth. I've been very disappointed in the, in the leadership of Tom Perez, but Bernie, by pulling out earlier this time, seems really eager to get Trump the heck out of there. 
where does this leave the DNC? Is there antipathy against the left and favoritism of the corporate Hillary wing always going to be irresolvable? Will they ever get it? Do you think? Well, speculate. Let me go back to the, let me go back to the other point for a second, sure, um, sure. which is just I just want to expand on that just a little bit and just say that um, I feel that the Democrats are also playing a very dangerous game right now that is the result of their kind of entrenched ideology. And what I mean by that is that we have a situation, I'm just going to use this as an example. We have a situation where millions and millions of people are unemployed right now because of this coronavirus crisis. Yes. And the reaction of the Trump administration has been a complete disaster. But what they have done is that they have sent these checks, even though they're not, they're they're completely insufficient to address this problem. But they have sent these checks, right? Yep. Joe Biden has come out with a plan to give tax rebates to employers to keep people employed. Now, which one of those do you think is Uh, going to be more appealing to to somebody who is saying, my life is not going to fundamentally change that much depending on which one of them is in office? I'm not even saying that that is a legitimate. I'm not even saying that that's true. Right. I'm just saying that if you're if you're only looking out for your, for your own interests, and you see these two men as fundamentally serving the same interests, uh, or, or the same you know the same large interest, special interests, right. then which one of those is more appealing? Obviously, it's the Trump one. So, I, you know, I, I really think that. The idea that, that people are saying that the two of them are fundamentally the same is a perspective that a lot of people have that is uh, ridiculed in a lot of ways and rejected uh, by political commentators. But we really need to take it seriously because if this is the kind of solution the Democrats are going to present, and they are in serious trouble in November. Now, having said that, yeah, yeah. As, as, as far as the DNC goes and kicking the progressive movement in the teeth, um, my personal feeling on this is that the Democratic Party is essentially two different parties. Um, there's a right wing and a progressive wing. Yes. And the right wing has been in control of the party for my entire life. And I do not see it. Uh, stopping kicking the progressive movement in the teeth because what the right-wing establishment of the party is much better at uh, beating down the progressive wing of the party (laughs) because that is what it's designed to do much more than it's designed to win a general election. The general election is is, like those are... What I'm trying to say here is that, that, that the Democratic Party as a whole uh, is a party that is designed to win elections. That's that's mm. what that's what any political party does. But the Democratic establishment, the DNC, that is designed to keep that wing of the party in power, uh, which is you know just like a it's it's just the way that it is. It's not you know, there's no yeah. uh, conspiracy yeah. here or anything. That's, no. just, that's just what it's built for. It's just. Yeah, that's the so I do find it fascinating. You write that when Bernie dropped out, Wall Street surged upward. <laughs> you know, it, it goes along with with what you're saying, and I, I think you know, there's millions of us 
I think, traditional FDR kind of Democrats, and not that many in the DNC, but they do have a lot of power. They have a tremendous amount of power, unfortunately. It's money. It's always money. And people are hoping, Bernie people are hoping, I'm certainly hoping that Biden will possibly (laughs) get uh, that he needs to appeal to the progressive wing. Is there any evidence that Biden is picking up what Bernie is laying down? Is there any evidence of that at all? Like Medicare for all? Well, it doesn't, Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, he 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 what he downward expanded uh, Medicare from sixty five to sixty. That's that's supposed to be, but I, I mean, I I just don't. It, yeah. it, I don't know. I mean, I'm not very I'm not very hopeful. Uh, I'm not very confident that that, that this, but you know, um, I think that I, I I think that I think that Biden and Biden and, and Biden's handlers, his campaign, um, like it, it is it is built more around addressing the needs of the consulting class and the donors than yeah. it is to addressing uh, the kind of Sanders progressive wing. Obviously, not going to pick Bernie as vice president. Right? I mean, that's that's never been in the cards. But um, there's been some suggestion that maybe he would pick Warren. I I don't think that that's going to happen. But uh, you know, I it, I just don't I just don't know what he yeah I don't think could he should logically pick do yeah, yeah could could logically do to appeal to the Sanders movement that would make sense. Um, and so I, I expect, uh, you know, after 2016 and, uh, enduring that, that, uh, the main appeal of Democrats to progressive voters is going to be scolding them and threatening them with Trump. And, and then, and, and there's going to be no concessions whatsoever and, or, or, or no concessions that really mean anything. And, and that, that's just going to be the strategy. That's that's not uh, particularly hopeful. That's quite frankly what I've been worried about with Biden. Why I never thought he should be the nominee. You got to, you know, you can't just be not Trump. We tried being not Bush with Kerry in two thousand four. You know, you have to have a message. And I just maybe he'll get one. I don't know. Hillary never had a message. It just maybe it's my turn. I got to tell you, Bert. Like the. Feeling that I'm reliving 2004 is so strong right now, and it is absolutely horrifying. Oh, great! <laughs> well, <laughs> a Facebook friend, James Ransdell, put it this way: "I'm pissed that my choice is oligarchy or fascism. Since fascism sucks more than oligarchy, I'll vote for Biden." <laughs> I mean, my concern about Biden is that. His ability to win, you know, it, 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 we just talked about there. I, I, I don't know if there's going to be enthusiasm for Biden. Maybe this whole coronavirus thing will help. I don't know. Uh, it does seem to me that so many Democrats and people on the left are, are falling into the trap of this fabulous provocateur. It's so easy to do and it's so blatant. And I worry about purity. I have long argued, as many people know, that purity is poison. Do you see evidence that the purists are starting to be flexible? And do you think Biden can possibly reach out to them? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always felt that the, the purists are completely inflexible, and yeah. uh, they now have their candidate in Biden. 
um, the, the establishment in the right wing of the Democratic Party has always been the purest oh, wow. part I don't of the party. Oh. The, I suppose this too. The left, the left has not. The left, um, for the large part, always goes along uh, with who the party selects, uh, much as like Bernie's. I mean, you can you, look at two elections eight years apart. The right wing of the party in 2008 was in favor of Hillary Clinton. Right. The left wing of the party in 2016 was in favor of Bernie Sanders. Which candidate, which which candidate had more of their supporters vote for the Republican in that general election? Right. Hillary Clinton, yes. not Bernie Sanders. Of course. So yeah, that's I, a good I, point. I, I, I frankly, I frankly would push back very hard on the idea that the left or progressives are the uh, the purists. I think that that is well, some of them not are. supported. But it's it, not supported by the fact that it's that it's that it's any that it's at all uh, significant or or meaningful. What is supported by the fact is that the right wing of the party are the purists, and that they are the ones who will actually withhold their vote if people are if if there's a suggestion that people might get health care or the right. taxes may be raised on the rich or something like that. So I, I would push I would push back yeah, on that. You're saying that the purists are on the left. That's a good point. That's a good point. They're not going to let anybody stand in their way. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff, there's commondreams.org. Owen Higgins, thank you so much today. The nonprofit progressive news site. Of course. Thank you. All right. could forget that amazing ad by Bernie Sanders from 2016. With everyone staying at home, the coronavirus is threatening us. And of course, it's our primary focus. The news every day is pretty much all COVID-19 all the time. It seems the only thing else on the TV news is tornadoes. Who thinks about Iran or Venezuela in these times? Well, it seems that Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo do. Our guest today, Marjorie Cohn, reveals that while we have not been paying attention, the Trump administration has found that the coronavirus is a very convenient way to seriously attack the people of Iran and Venezuela. Her new article on Truthout is titled, Intensifying Sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, Trump is Weaponizing Coronavirus. Marjorie Cohn uh, is a professor emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild, deputy secretary general of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. Well, thanks for being back with us. The Trump regime has been applying harsh sanctions for a long time against Iran and Venezuela. What, what until now, has, 
has been the effect of this? What is their stated purpose? What are they trying to do? Well, the United States has maintained basically an economic blockade of Iran, of its energy banking and financial sectors and foreign investment and targeting basic food and medicine. Um, and the uh, what has happened is that uh, Iran's exports, oil exports, have plummeted. Um, its currency has been substantially devalued, and the country is in severe recession. And um, in 2019, in October of 2019, Human Rights Watch found that the United States maximum pressure campaign drastically constrained the ability of Iranian entities to finance humanitarian imports, including vital medicines and medical equipment. Um, when, when Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal mm -hmm. in um, <clears throat> 2018, he reimposed heavy economic sanctions against Iran. And I should say that the Iran nuclear deal was actually working yes. to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And uh, the, the stated goal of the Trump administration um, was to eliminate all Iranian oil exportation. And Mike Pompeo, Trump's secretary of state, yes. said the U.S. would crush Iran with new sanctions so severe they could lead to regime change. Well, this is, and, and, he, and he also said, Pompeo, that things are much worse for the Iranian people, and we're convinced that will lead the Iranian people to rise up and change the behavior of the regime. So it's all aimed at regime change. Um, but that strategy didn't work in Cuba. No. In 1960, when the U.S. blockade was imposed, um, it was specifically denying uh, money, supplies, uh, de decreasing wages to the Cuban people to be bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of the government. That's out of a secret State Department memo. But the Cuban people have not overthrown their government. Um, so we have this, this history of sanctions against Iran and now, with the um, with the the plague uh, circling the globe, this would be the time to lift the sanctions to make life easier for the Iranian people. But instead, um, Trump has actually tightened and expanded the sanctions against Iran. Now, uh, do you want to hear about Venezuela also? Well, or? let's let's talk about Iran at at first. Okay. And you write that as of April thirteenth, Iran had suffered seventy three thousand three hundred three cases of COVID nineteen and over 4,500 deaths. I'm sure it's worse now. Now, in what ways is the Trump administration weaponizing the coronavirus when it comes to Iran? Well, the, the, there's no question the sanctions have actually hurt Iran's ability to contain the virus and leading to more infections and possibly the spread of the virus beyond Iran's borders to Afghanistan, where there are U.S. troops. Yes. This is according to the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Um, and uh, the Iranian foreign minister calls it economic terrorism, uh, and refusing to lift the sanctions during this, uh, this plague, um, the, the foreign minister saying that it's medical terrorism, which it is. Um, so it's making things worse. Um, and also, uh, Iran asked the International Monetary Fund for a $5 billion loan, $5 billion loan to, fight, to, to help it fight against the coronavirus, because as you said, with the, this high number of deaths and casualties and people that have the virus, um, Iran is really an epicenter of the virus uh, globally and regionally, but, in, but, but the United States... Um, actually blocked 
the the loan, the IMF loan to Iran uh, to basically add insult to injury. And so now it makes it even harder for Iranians to obtain, you know, food, hygienic supplies um, that are basic to their survival. So this this regime change strategy that the Trump administration has is only hurting the people, yes. um, just like the, the blockade of Cuba only hurt the Cuban people, and, uh, and it's not going to lead to regime change, which is illegal anyway. And it does appear to me that, that our blockade of Cuba has made support for Cuba amongst its own people much, much stronger. It's, it's you know, to have a clear enemy like that, it, it only serves the exact opposite of its purpose, it seems to me. Now, with Iran, one more thing. In 1953, the U.S. overthrew a popular government. What Are they a threat to us? Is it, what is this historic and continuing determination against Iran? Is it about us or maybe the Saudis? Well, um, in when the uh, democratically elected Iranian government of Mohammad Mossadegh, yes. who's the prime minister, um, nationalized a British oil company, the United States, of course, ran to the to the aid of its um, of its uh, you know fellow uh, oil power. And uh, and the CIA, and they've admitted this actually in 1953, engineered a coup and yes. threw out the democratically elected uh, um, Mossadegh and installed the vicious tyrant, the Shah of Iran, who makes uh, you know every other dictator look like a pussycat. I mean, the torture and the trauma and the terror that he instilled for 25 years, leading finally to an overthrow of his government by an, a united front coalition composed of nationalists, right. communists, um, ayatollahs. And what happened was that eventually uh, they won, they, they kicked the Shah out, the Shah came to the United States, got safe haven here, and it became a theocracy. Um, and that, you know, kind of set the stage for, uh, you know, the the radical Islamic um, governments in the Middle East. And so ever since then, the United States has been trying to overthrow the Iranian government, and uh, it has not worked so far. They've, the U.S. has uh, government has um, succeeded in making life miserable for the Iranian people, uh, but has not uh, been able to engineer regime change. And Trump's strategy of uh, undoing and unraveling every single thing Obama did, yeah. and not that Obama did everything right, but he certainly did some good things, including participating in this Iran nuclear deal, uh, Trump pulling out of it actually makes Iran more of a threat, not less of a threat in terms of developing nuclear weapons. And if I were Iran, I'd want to develop them too, quite frankly, with the U.S. Uh, you know, government heavily armed with nukes, et cetera, breathing down their, their necks. And Trump's buddy, the Saudi government, is no, they're pretty awful terrorists as well, but they hate the Iranian government and they're really uh, in competition with them. And that's got to be a factor. In addition to Iran, the Trump regime has been out to overthrow the legitimate government in Venezuela. 
<laughs> and it's it's really uh, it's it's amazing how uh, tough it's gotten. And there's just a uh, a report that just came out uh, recently from uh, Code Pink. Unbeknownst, I'll just read a little bit of it here. Unbeknownst to most Americans, and as we are grappling with this terrifying pandemic, the Trump administration is currently carrying out the largest military operation in Latin America in 30 years, and has made it clear the alleged Venezuelan narco terrorism is the target. Uh, and this, and again, this is uh, uh, from uh, Media yep, Benjamin. And Leonardo Flores, yeah, yeah, just wrote this article. And and she says this is the the last development of similar size took place at the time of the 1989 U.S. military intervention in Panama to remove Manuel Noriega. And this is uh, and apparently uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, big ships there and thousands of sailors, coast guardsmen, soldiers, airmen, marines involved in this operation. And again, uh, Medea goes on to explain the announcement came a week after U.S. Attorney General William Barr unsealed an indictment against President Nicolas Maduro and 13 other current or former Venezuelan officials who were accused of narco-terrorism and millions of dollars in cash rewards were offered for their information leading to their capture, including a $15 million reward. Uh, why, why are they, I mean... Maduro administration has been very effectively used as an example of the evils of socialism. They are like the other bad guys to the Trump and Barr regime. They had relied on oil for its economy, and the price under Chavez was high, but now it's it's gone down. What has been the role of U.S. sanctions in that country's economic collapse? And what is this uh, military posturing, do you think? Well, as of January 22nd, the United States had slapped um, sanctions on Venezuela's state oil company, government, and central bank, in addition to at least 144 Venezuelans or individuals connected with Venezuela. Um, The sanctions, the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela, caused 40,000 deaths. 40,000 deaths in 2017 and 2018, according to the Center for Economic Policy and Research. And Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Human Rights Watch um, issued a 71-page report detailing food shortages, medicine shortages, and sharp increases in disease. And they called the situation uh, a humanitarian um, <clears throat> emergency, and that was last year, imposed additional sanctions uh, against the government and indicted Maduro for this narco-terrorism conspiracy, um, sending these Navy destroyers to the Caribbean, and, and I'll get to that in a minute, Bert, but um, the U.S., for the, you know, under Trump, has been trying uh, overtly to change the regime and install a U.S. puppet named Juan Guaido, sure. who has no history at all in Venezuela, uh, was trained by the CIA, and tried a few times to engineer a coup unsuccessfully, but in the meantime, making, uh, you know, making um, uh, the pe- pe- people's lives miserable. Um, the sanctions have contributed to the largest economic collapse in a country outside of war since at least the 1970s, according to the New York Times. And Venezuela filed a complaint against the U.S. and the International Criminal Court calling the sanctions crime against crimes against humanity. And like Iran, Venezuela asked the International Monetary Fund for a $5 million uh, loan to help it cope with the, the plague, and uh, and the U.S.-controlled IMF denied that request. Um, I think that this military 
uh, posturing, and it's not just posturing because, as you said, um, we're we're talking Navy destroyers, combat ships, patrol aircraft, um, and and lots and lots of military force, um, ostensibly to fight against the war on drugs. You don't fight against the war sure. on drugs with the whole Navy, and 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 Venezuela is not the linchpin of the war on drugs. It's it's not. really Colombia that's much more responsible. But of course, that's a U.S. ally. But I think this is a distraction from the plague that uh, is you know hurting Trump because of his unconscionable mismanagement of it and denial of it for so long and, and continues to, to mismanage it and, and contribute to who knows how many deaths right. of Americans and others. Um, but uh, <clears throat> this, it's, it's all political, and uh, it could, what could happen is that um, the U.S. Navy could board and seize uh, Venezuelan oil, oil tankers, um, the Pentagon has claimed without any evidence at all that drugs are trafficked using naval vessels from Venezuela to Cuba. Um, and, uh, and a recent report from the Washington Office of Latin America shows only a small fraction of Colombian cocaine passed through Venezuela. Six times more uh, Colombian campaign uh, cocaine passes through Guatemala than Venezuela. And so um, this is really disturbing, and I hope that Congress is not asleep at the wheel, because whenever a U.S. president uh, attacks another country or uses military force, almost always, um, the Congress just salutes and marches right. because they don't want to be uh, you know, accused of being unpatriotic. But under the Constitution, only Congress has the power, power to declare war. And under the War Powers Resolution, um, if Congress doesn't declare war or provide statutory authorization or there's an attack on the U.S., which there hasn't been, then it's illegal to use military force. And yet it looks like that may very well be where Trump is headed, and it's very frightening. It's so convenient to have and a lovely little war to distract people's attentions. It's worked uh, so often. And, you know, the the founders of this country were no dopes, quite frankly. They, uh, you know, to, to say that only Congress can declare war, they meant it. But uh, the Constitution, ah, Trump has no use for that. And the Republicans, I don't know, they're just rubber stamping it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking with uh, Marjorie Cohen, Professor Emerita at Je Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of National Lawyers Guild, and Deputy Secretary General of the International Association of Democratic Lawyers. We're talking about intensifying sanctions on Iran and Venezuela. Trump is weaponizing coronavirus. Hard to believe, but it is, in fact, happening. And, and you write that... That the United States, by our own laws, cannot unilaterally impose sanctions against other countries. But we do it all the time. How does that happen? Well, um, the U.N. Charter is very—and the U.N. Charter is part of U.S. law, by, by the way, not just right. international law, because under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. Um, so under the U.N. Charter, only the Security Council has the authority to order sanctions, and the United States cannot unilaterally impose sanctions against other countries unless the Security Council agrees. Um, and in fact, uh, Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib introduced a bill in the House called the Congressional Oversight of Sanctions Act, H.R. 5879, that's H.R. 5879, Thank you. Um, which would provide some measure of congressional oversight of sanctions so that the president doesn't just willy-nilly impose sanctions.
sanctions whenever he wants. It would require a report on why sanctions were chosen rather than uh, another tool to address the emergency, whether the sanctions are unilateral, that means just the United States imposing them, and if so, why no other country has imposed them, and the requirements for lifting the sanctions. Um, also, uh, the Charter of the Organization of American States, the OAS, mm -hmm. uh, prohibits any country from directly or indirectly intervening in the internal or external affairs of another country, and that includes uh, political, economic, and cultural interference, and no government can use coercive economic or political measures to force the sovereign will of another state, and that's precisely what the U.S. is doing, both in Venezuela and in Iran. It violates both the, the U.N. Charter and the Charter of the OAS. And the Republicans, of course, are saying nothing. And it's amazing to me how they used to call, maybe they still do call themselves patriots, but the Constitution, their actual legal responsibility, they're not doing it, at least. Uh, and we'll get back again uh, to talk about that bill from uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. You point out, again, in your article in Truth Out, collective punishment is a war crime. The United States is punishing the people of Iran and Venezuela for the actions of their governments. This constitutes illegal collective punishment. Tell us about that, and what can be done about that? Well, the Fourth Geneva Convention, which is another treaty the U.S. has ratified and therefore for part of U.S. law under the Supremacy Clause, um, says, as you say, collective punishment is a war crime, and it says that no civilian can be punished for an offense he or she has not personally committed. Um, reprisals against these people, protected persons and their property, is prohibited, and yet the United States is punishing the people of Iran and Venezuela for the actions of their governments, or their perceived actions of their governments. That's illegal collective punishment, and this is um, <clears throat> this is uh, something that um, Israel is famous for, is uh, collective punishment of the Palestinians when uh, there is, you know, some of these little rockets are thrown by, uh, by some Palestinian armed groups uh, into Israel, uh, rarely hit their targets, do, do uh, cause fear among the Israelis. Uh, generally settlers right. who are illegally uh, occupying the land. But then what, the, what, what Israel does with the uh, support of the United States, mm -hmm. because the United States finances Israel's military, um, uses overwhelming force to punish the people um, and just in, in a very cruel and inhumane way, and that is also illegal collective punishment under the Fourth Geneva Convention, aided and abetted, I might say, by the U.S. government. And how well has that worked with the Palestinians? Not particularly well. You know, many years ago on Rocky and Bullwinkle, Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works, but we keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Collective punishment, trying to do regime change. Uh, it, it's, you know, the British used to be the, uh, the empire. Now, obviously, it's us. Well, what about Venezuela? I mean, Iran, I, I you know, we talked about that a bit. Is Venezuela... Is that pictured as a threat? I mean, what, what, what's their, the Trump's and Pompeo's uh, uh, argument for why we want to attack Venezuela? 
I, I don't well, know. Their argument is that uh, Maduro is is a socialist socialist government, the same way, the same argument they made against Cuba. Sure. Um, Venezuela poses no greater threat to the United States than Cuba does, and that's nothing, no threat at all. Sure. And yet, um, during the Hugo Chavez regime, which was very popular with the people, um, in his Bolivarian revolution, um, the U.S. government was trying to undermine him at every step, and then he died, and Nicolás Maduro took over and then was elected in a free and fair election. Jimmy Carter's group went and, and observed the election, mm. and yet the, and, and, you know, not that Maduro is perfect, there's been a lot of corruption, um, in the government, and, uh, but, but the sanctions against uh, the U.S. sanctions against Venezuela have made their economic problems much, much worse. And quite frankly, um, what the U.S. government is doing is illegal. Regime change is illegal. No country has the right to forcibly change the regime of another country. Uh, another treaty the U.S. has ratified is called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and that recognizes self-determination as a human right. It guarantees all peoples the right to freely determine their political status and freely pursue their economic, social, and cultural development. So, um, and, and the OAS Charter also prevents uh, regime change. It forbids regime change. And yet that's the policy of the U.S. government is to change the regime and install uh, a, a puppet yes. that the United States can control. I mean, Venezuela is an oil-rich country. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not just a coincidence yeah. that the U.S. wants to change the regime. Right. Same way, if Saddam Hussein, it, terrible as he was, had said to U.S. corporations, come on in and I'll give you sweet deals on the oil, rather than resisting that, um, he would probably still be there today. He wouldn't have. Uh, he would would not have been overthrown by the uh, Bush administration. Uh, the obscene power of oil. I mean, it pollutes so much and tremendous political power. Well, I did want to get back. I always like to give listeners something positive that they can do if they want. Tell us more again about you know, and you'd be surprised. Uh, calling your member of Congress really makes a difference. They really do pay attention. So tell us about this bill that Ilhan Omar and Rashid, Rashida Tlaib have introduced with regard to oversight of sanctions. So what can listeners do, the bill number, etc.? Um, people can call or text or yes. email or in any other way contact their congressional representatives to Support H.R. 5879, H.R. 5879, which is the Congressional Oversight of Sanctions Act, but also make it clear that the U.S. government should lift the sanctions against Venezuela and Iran and Cuba and Nicaragua and many other countries, but I'm focusing here on Iran and Venezuela, and that um, they also should vote against or, or maybe pass a resolution if it could get through both yeah. houses of Congress to prevent any military, U.S. military action against Venezuela. That would be nice. It can be done. We, we are not powerless. Some, they want us to believe we're powerless, but we are not powerless. Again, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, the article is on Truthout. You write for Truthout uh, fairly often, Marjorie Cohn. Good to talk to you yet again. And, uh, We'll keep at it. It is rather surprising, though, isn't it? Yes, it is, Bert. Thanks so much, and stay well. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, yeah. In the past two weeks, the 
The number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. And the number of affected countries has tripled. Titanium 